Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, with the content of today's episode and the two episodes that we're going to be covering here, I have one question to ask. Who are you? I am Jakar's sexy chest piece. Unacceptable. I am Anna, statistician, and oh god, I I don't have something good for this. Fuck. That is your profession. That is not who you are. Unacceptable. I mean, fair. (laughs) Fair. You got me. That's fair. All right. Today, we are going to be discussing episodes 20 and 21 of season two, The Long Twilight Struggle, and Comes the Inquisitor. We're getting real close to the end of the season here. Yeah, this is our second to last episode. This is great. All right. So first up, we have season two, episode 20, The Long Twilight Struggle. Jude, take us away. Hi, folks. It's me, Jude. You've come to expect rants, dunks, furious ravings about the medical and sexual ethical shortcomings of Dr. Franklin (laughs) for me. (laughs) And boy, do I wish I had some of that this episode. Uh, instead, the best I can offer you is Jakar Thirst and rampant enthusiasm for Andreas Katsalis. Let's go. We open with Malari on Centauri Prime, uh, the first time we've seen him there, uh, in fact, talking with Lord Rifa. Rifa is happier than a pig in shit, gloating about how they've got the Emperor in their pocket. Londo is extremely tired and over his shit. Uh, then Rifa unburies his lead. It's time to end the war. Bum, bum, bum. Roll credits. On B5, Delenn is looking peaceful and meditative until a hearty chortle disturbs her and she smiles. She appears to recognize that jolly laugh. It's Santa! No, wait. Corwin in C&C says there's a signal coming from Sigma 3. So probably, more likely, it's just Drawl, which is confirmed a few minutes later when he appears before Sheridan just after he steps out of his honest-to-God hot water shower. Uh, Please note my self-control not commenting on the extremely weird exotic porn music, more than mentioning it. Drawl and Sheridan chat, and there's a quick line about why Drawl looks so different. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that the previous actor was engaged in something else, probably more profitable. Uh, (laughs) They make a nice excuse about how the machine has revivified him. He wants Sheridan and one other to come visit immediately. Apparently, uh, it's also going to be a meet-cute with Glenn. That's nice. Nothing like having your mentor hook you up. Elsewhere, Jakar is uh, meeting with his uncle, who sounds mysteriously like a soul hunter. That's weird. The war is going badly, and the Ka'ri are keeping it under wraps. They've come up with some cockamamie last-ditch attack scheme designed to scare the Centauri into backing off. This plan is just awful. It's just terrible. Uh, But I guess things are going badly enough that that's what you do. It's a desperate hope. Uh, Certainly nothing will go wrong, especially after Jakar jinxes it 
by saying it will leave Homeworld undefended. As he leaves, Gastan tells Jakar his father would be very proud of him. Uh, it is an unfairly touching moment, sold very well by these two great actors. Made all the more uh, poignant in the very next scene when Rifa reveals that they have gotten wind of this attack, as is completely predictable by Jakar jinxing it. And he has a truly devious read, you know, war crimey plan in mind. He wants Londo to get the shadows to fuck up the Narn's attack while they send their entire fleet to Narn. Londo is dumbfounded at the prospect of invasion. Uh, he says they'll be up to their elbows in blood, to which Rifa cheerily replies that invasion isn't the plan. War crimes is! They're going to use mass drivers, a.k.a. hurling giant space rocks from orbit. Londo helpfully points out that those are outlawed. These are uncivilized times, Rifa responds. We have treaties, Londo rebutes. Actually, you want to do that line? We have treaties. Ink on the page. Okay, Rifa, putting aside that this is in all likelihood bits in the computer in point of fact, uh, I get that you're being metaphorical. Yes, that's what it means when you put something down in a treaty. You write it down. What is your point? Uh, his point is he doesn't give a fuck. If you didn't already think Rifa was scum, this scene really sells it. Londo is clearly desperately uncomfortable, but boy, does Rifa not give a fuck. Whew. I said I wasn't going to rant, but I guess I am a little bit here. Um, Londo tries to back out, which feels like a whole lot too little, a whole lot too late. It's the thought that counts. Except not, but yes, I think that's <laughs> yeah. the which, what they're trying to do here with Londo. Rifa tells him that it's the only way to save Centauri lives, not mentioning that it's going to cost millions of Narn lives. And eventually Londo folds like a cheap card table, and uh, they're off to the races. Uh, he does say, however, that this is the last time that he's going to use his allies. Uh, Rifa agrees and then surprises Londo with one last happy, fun thing. They have front row seats for the slaughter. They're going along for the attack. Londo deserves nothing less than having to watch this destruction he's caused. Sheridan and Delenn, for reasons passing understanding, have told Garibaldi about their plans to go down to Epsilon 3, and Garibaldi is being a paranoid bag of rotten assholes about it. Like, you know that guy, for no reason at all, decides to just shit on every idea you have? Like, every single point of an idea? Yeah. He's like the guy at the D&D &D table that points out why every plan you have won't work. Like, your AC is not high enough. You don't have that skill. That's not how the rules work. Like, this is Garibaldi in this scene. Like, just unrelentingly shitting on this entire idea. Uh, until Ivanova walks in and saves the day uh, by telling them that, yes, in fact, the signal's coming from Epsilon 3. So shut the fuck up, Garibaldi. They buckle up and head out. And down on the planet... Sheridan questions Delenn's recall of where they're going, walking through the same tunnel multiple times, shot from slightly different angles, so it looks like it's not the same tunnel walked through multiple times. And Delenn tries out her newest bit of human language, absolutely. Uh, it's charming, and I can see Anna's face that she wants to talk about that more. Uh, we'll get there. They are both very impressed with the machine, and Sheridan is just like a kid in a candy shop with it. Eventually, they get to the heart of the machine, where Drawl's still up in his little, not a Christ metaphor position, and Drawl shows up. Uh, he's very complimentary about Delenn's changes, 
and is uh, equally complimentary of Sheridan's handling of the station. He tells them it's time for Epsilon 3 to join their little alliance and then walks them out. Like the whole thing was just, you know, a chance for Delenn and Sheridan to flirt and um, for Drawl to be pompous and choose scenery, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's in character for them. It really yeah, is. Honestly. And it's a fun scene. And, and Sheridan got to see the heart of the machine, which, you know, is pretty cool. But uh, as they're leaving... Uh, as he's bidding them farewell, Drawl feels a disturbance in the force, as if a, a thousand voices cried out, uh, I mean, in the machine. It looks like he has a stomachache, for the record. He makes a face like he has a stomachache. It looks like he ate some bad... Flarn. I said something. Yeah. Like, it... like there's something that we need to set up for season three. Yeah, it looks like he ate some bad <laughs> curried flarn and is needs <laughs> needs to hit the head, like, ASAP. So he's like, all right, guys, get out of here. I got to go wreck the head. <laughs> so they, they get out of there. And as he's as they're leaving, he, he shouts for Zathras. And that's the bit. Jakar, back on B5, is in med lab at Franklin Summons. No, it's not because Franklin has an indecent proposal, though who could blame him with Jakar? Uh, <laughs> instead, it's because Franklin took a deathbed report from a Narn who was tortured for information and then the Centauri abandoned the planet. This apparently is very much unlike the Centauri, and it has raised Franklin and Jakar's suspicions. It's got both of them thinking that there's something going on, and combined with what Jakar knows about the Narn attack plan, he thinks that the Centauri have gotten wind of it. He desperately tries to get a hold of Gastan to warn him, but it's too late. Gastan is not convinced, and says that they're too far along either way, they're about to jump out and start the attack. They make the jump, and just as they leave hyperspace, the shadows attack, predictably. The Narns attack back, and it does fuck all. One of the shadows takes a big old dump on the battlefield, and a bunch of little tiny fighter ships burst out of it, which is gross and scary. Jakar prays. All of the Narn fleet shoots at one shadow ship at the same time, and they manage to cut off like it's pinky, which is great for them. That's the most damage we've ever seen anyone do to a shadow ship so far. So, you know, go you guys. Really killing it. Uh, and then they all get fucked up. Uh, the shadow ships blow up their ships. They try to run away. And then the shadows use some fancy weapon to blow up their jump gates, and they all die. Jakar finishes praying and puts out his candle in, again, another scene that is undeservedly moving and just reeking of gravitas. A recurring theme in this episode where everything that is not Jakar and Londo is fine, but Jakar and Londo both elevate this episode to really uh, like almost uncomfortably emotional heights. And this scene where he's sitting in the dark and puts out that, that last candle after praying is just a very quiet, moving one that is entirely sold. It's wordless, and it's entirely sold by Andreas Katsalis's charisma. Or maybe I just, you know, like Jakar a little too much. You, you decide. Ivanova goes with Garibaldi, uh, shows up at Garibaldi's office with a warning that the Centauri are invading the Narn homeworld, uh, hoping that they can lock the station down before a riot starts. But... ISN sinks their battleship. On the Zocalo, there's an improbable number of Narn and Centauri drinking all at the same bar, like right next to each other, which is weird. Like, it's awfully convenient for a riot about to break out. 
Uh, they begin brawling as the ISN reporter reads off the news, and uh, it turns into a full-blown station-wide riot. We cut back to Narn, where to one of the most disturbing musical cues in the show. I swear to God, to this day, that music makes me, like, viscerally uncomfortable because I associate it with this moment in this show. We watch as ships hurl these giant rocks down towards the planet while Londo watches through the window, the carnage reflected in the glass. This scene is incredible, and all credit to the CGI team. This is probably, I mean, like, at this point, this is probably one of the like, most impressive CGI spectacles that is on TV at this point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, by far. I remember watching this with Justin, and Justin's reaction was exactly what I hoped it would be. Just horror. Yeah. This was the first episode where we started doing streams together, and I was just like... As the, as the mass drivers hit. Yeah. Yeah. Because up until that moment, you, you think that something's gonna stop them, right? Like, somehow, somehow it's not going to happen. And then it happens. Or at a minimum that it won't be, you don't expect it to, to see it. You don't expect it to hit like that. And then you just, you get this scene of Londo watching while this dirge-like track plays. And the the flashes of the mass drivers lighting up the window. And you see Londo just standing there horrified. Uh, it's fucking intense. Um, and one of like the, one of those like iconic for me, at least Babylon five moments, the Narns last four days under this bombardment, which is fucking insane. Like it's a testament to the Narns stubbornness and hardiness and that they are willing to, that they last four entire days under this kind of bombardment. All the governments protest this completely illegal bombing, but nobody does anything. They just let the Centauri continue to bomb them uh, as they, as one of the Earth Generals puts it, back into the Stone Age before they finally surrender. Jakar gets a message from Homeworld and from the Kari who tell, who inform him that they are, they're going to have to surrender. There's almost nothing left of the planet. And if they don't surrender, there won't be a planet left to surrender. He, uh, gets one final instruction, the hardest instruction that they will ever send him. It cuts to Sheridan's office, and he walks in in his full ambassadorial regalia in another moment that is tense and, again, just so uh, heavy. Uh, he walks in and slowly, uh, painfully almost, requests official sanctuary on Babylon 5. From there, we get Londo returning to B5. He immediately requests a meeting of the B5 Council and the League. Garibaldi, the resident fascist, gives him the coldest of cold shoulders. And when you have earned the cold shoulder from the station fascist, you know you've done fucked up. At said meeting, he's apparently wrapped up his guilt very neatly and he's back to being pompous Londo. He announces the terms of the surrender that the Narn have agreed to you know, or, or being bombed back into non-existence. The Kari are to be arrested and tried for war crimes. That's ironic. Any Narn killing the Centauri will be, uh, will result in the execution of 500 Narn, including the, the family of the perpetrator. They will set up a provisional government as a colony of the Centauri. 
Uh, he then saunters over and demands that Jakar be stripped of his ambassadorship and sent back to Narn for trial. Sheridan, very smugly, denies him the chance to send Jakar home and tells him that he will he has asked for and received sanctuary on the station. Londo, obviously infuriated, demands frothing that at least Jakar be thrown out of the meeting. You can see this scene is intense. Uh, you can see something break between Sheridan and Delenn and Londo here. Up until this point, they, you had, with the war going on, they had still managed to, to be like civil. And there's a point there where you can see like a bridge is not just burned, but like mass drivered into non-existence between Sheridan and Londo and uh, Delenn and Londo there. Jakar slowly, almost fragilely stands uh, and then speaks. I will not dare attempt to reproduce said speech, but uh, perhaps Zathras uh, will insert it here because it's an incredibly stirring speech um, and it deserves to be reproduced. No dictator, no invader can hold an imprisoned population by force of arms forever. There is no greater power in the universe than the need for freedom. Against that power, governments and tyrants and armies cannot stand. The Centauri learned this lesson once. We will teach it to them again. Though it take a thousand years, we will be free. After the meeting, Londo sits alone in the dark, listening to ISN announce the Centauri's plans to annex several more worlds. So much for that whole, like, we're done with being at war thing, Rifa. Sheridan and Jakar speak in Jakar's quarters, where Sheridan promises him that he will do all he can to help Jakar win back his world and offers him his hand. Jakar reminds him that the last time he shook someone's hand like that, they were at war 24 hours later, and Sheridan just continues to offer his hand, and they shake. Uh, Sheridan leaves, and the last shot of Jakar is him looking like he's on the verge of tears. Finally, we get Sheridan summoned to a meeting. He's introduced to the Rangers, and their existence is explained to him in brief. He's told that in the coming, in the great war that is coming, his leadership is needed, and Delenn makes him equal leader of the Rangers. He gives a little speech uh, and gets really into it and throws out some pompous speechifying and i gotta say it lands flatter in the fucking pancake for me after jakar fucking blows it out of the water like a goddamn battleship in full blast and then sheridan comes out like one of those little tiny cannon toys your dad buys you at the hobby lobby when you're like 10 and you think you know rockets are cool but you're not really mature enough to get one of the rockets that goes up in the air so you get the little one where you put the little thing inside it like makes a little puff of smoke. Yeah, that's Sheridan's speech after Jakar blows it out of the damn water with his freedom speech. 
Uh, don't get me wrong. I think I think Sheridan does a good bit of speechifying in this show, but this one just doesn't work for me. Uh, and that's it. Yeah. Um, I do want to say that there is one uh, bit of that speech that I do like, which is that uh, Sheridan says, we will hold that line no matter the cost. And listen, just to somebody who likes Mass Effect, any any speech that includes we will hold the line is like that's promoted like 5% of my book. It's one of those speeches that like would be fine if it weren't immediately following the Jakar speech, which overshadows it too, like so much. Yeah, it's if it was in another episode, it would be a lot better. Yeah, yeah, it just it's it feels real weak after Jakar's speech. And also, I feel like the moment isn't earned. You know where that speech should have gone? I feel like that speech should have gone at the end of Come See Inquisitor. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Because, you know, if I were structuring the show, I would give him control of the Rangers after Come See Inquisitor. Yeah, that whole scene could have been easily excised out and stuck after Comes the Inquisitor, and it would have played way better. With the with the exception of the B-plot in Comes the Inquisitor, where the rangers are used for the message, but you know, it's still like you could do a little bit of shuffling, and that's where it would hit. as like, you know, the up mm-hmm. note after the very Sheridan-focused, or Sheridan-focused. Yeah. Oh man, 100%. I could not agree with you more. Oh, well, we we were not writing the series. Yeah. Things we liked and didn't like about this episode. Um, I think you may have noticed, I really liked Jakar in this episode. (laughs) I think Andreas Kotzelis fucking crushes literally every second he is on screen in this episode. Whether he's talking or standing, there is no moment in this show that he is not absolutely destroying what he's doing. He's literally, in one scene, he is sitting with a book in front of him, and then he puts out a candle. Doesn't say a fucking word. And that scene hits you like somebody chucked bricks at you. The other thing that I want to give props to, other than the strange shower porno music, the <laughs> the which is it's funny, at least. I mean, yeah. Other than that, the music in this episode is extremely good um, and sets the tone very well. And arguably, it's not that that music choice is a bad music choice. It's just a bizarre one. Yeah, Yeah. it's just, it's okay. We're getting this. Well, it's Uh. the the thing that you were saying um, before we started recording is that it's it's really funny because the music sets you up to thinking that it's going to be like Ivanova. Yeah, you know, yeah, stepping was, out from the shower. I was just gonna say, it's not <laughs> in the '90s. Being that the show was from the '90s, if it had been Ivanova stepping out of the shower, you would have been like, n- now watching it, you would have been like, gross. But yeah, I saw where that was going. But yeah, instead, it's, it's, it's Sheridan, so it's like a total curveball. For what I understand, at least of like time of the era, like Bruce Boxler was was like an actor who was well liked by ladies like i like my my senior year government teacher like had a big bruce boxlitner crush all right i mean i'm just like no that's cool like this was 2009 too so it was like this was not like this is a thing that lasted it's it's um i would say that like you know he's he's pretty easy on the eyes as somebody who would 
put myself in that category of liking Bruce Boxlentler to some degree, at least. He's pretty easy on the eyes, like not like stellar. He he has that earnestness about him that makes you feel like he would just be like a nice person to be around. Like he falls into the like, I could see this person being a boyfriend category. Not not the he like he has like good soft dad energy. Yeah, I was just gonna it's, say it's, that. Yeah, it's not the like oh yeah smoking hot zone. It's the yeah. like yeah I could I could see being with that person, which of course is all a fantasy because like this is television. But yeah. Yeah. you know I can dream right. Yeah, no, I get that, and especially as 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 Justin has said several times, Delenn and Sheridan have like put out a lot of like good heterosexual energy on this show which is kind of hard to find on tv in any era <laughs> so they have such good chemistry together and i sh- i ship them so hard yeah i do want to talk about like the staging quote unquote for the fight between the narn fleet and the shadows is this where you drag me about the hyperspace thing because you've already indicated we're that. gonna we're gonna go through we're gonna we're gonna get to that in a minute okay but, but i i do want to actually talk about like the scene but it's like um because the the, the ships actually like start off at like long range mm-hmm. and jms talks about this in lurker's guide of like basically like in a sci-fi world you would probably have ships engaging far beyond visual range because that's just where technology would progress to yeah makes sense but that doesn't make for interesting visuals on television because well television is a visual medium and so like showing like instead like different tactics for like the narn don't use like their beam weapons or what have you like they launch like these energy mines and then like the one of the shadow ships take a little shit and launches a bunch of little shadow fighters (laughs) yeah uh, and so it's like you get to see like a little bit of tactics or at least like different weapons being used, which I think is cool. Yeah, no, I th- it's one of the it's one of the the better fleet battles we get to this point. I mean, it's going to get yeah. it's going to get topped real fast. But mm-hmm. to this point, it's it's definitely one of the best ones we've seen. Now, following that, though, I do also want to talk about something in technology. This is the second time this season a dart ship has blown up while trying to jump to hyperspace. Okay. Um, the first Citizen time, Vajude, would you care to uh, comment on the volatility of Narn jump engines? Neither time were the the Narn ships at fault. The first time they were sh- they were blown up by a shadow ship while exiting hyperspace, and it was blamed on the the, the Narn ships. Not in fact. Oh, no, the Narn that's ships not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about the. I'm talking about it, and now for a, now for a word. Oh, I, haven't, I didn't watch that episode. Fuck that. <laughs> That's the one I was referring to. I didn't watch that episode. <laughs> you, being, you sticking to the bit is making this, this one not good. And in this case, they, again, their hyperspace was sabotaged. It wasn't that their ship failed. It was that the shadows fucked up their jump points. It's not their fault. Well, and actually, actually, I'm surprised that jump points aren't weaponized more in space combat in this um, in this universe. They talk about that in a later episode. Yeah, because they have a huge. I mean, Sheridan uses them as tactics, like uh, in his tactics. Yeah. Well, he talks about. Remember, he talks about it. He calls it the bonehead maneuver. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's going to be. Uh, we're going to talk about in like two episodes. Yeah. Is it that soon? 
I think it's, so. It's a uh, S3D1. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Jump gate, jump gate war tactics are tricky. Well, yeah, I mean, like, so the the short version, we we won't talk about specifically what, about the bonehead maneuver, but basically, jump gates are incredibly expensive to make, and surviving fucking around with a with a jump gate well, has jump proven points, to be futile. Jump points, though. Yeah. Well, are, sorry. With jump points, is pr- yeah. proving to uh, the did uh, I screwing say gates around. or did I say? Well, it's interchangeable. Said. Like screwing yeah. around with jump points has proven to be unprofitable. So I think that's why. But the shadows have demonstrated the, that the apparently they don't ships, have a problem. The NARM ships that we've seen so far get like fucked with with regard to hyperspace have been. It's happened while they were forming a jump point. And I feel like there's there's a certain amount of volatility in the jump points that aren't stabilized by gates. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, they're just like a huge amount of energy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I have to assume that 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 there has to be uh, some war technologies around that. Yeah. I I do find it interesting that when Londo returns to B five after. Uh, the after the attack on Narn, there is just a straight up air raid siren playing. Yeah, yeah, which I don't think I remembered the first time. Uh, is it playing when Londo gets there? It's I know it's it's yeah. airing yeah, it's, when it's when Londo returns. It's playing when Londo returns. I know it's it's which, it's playing when Delenn and Sheridan get back. I wasn't sure if it's still air, if if it's still spinning out when Londo gets yeah. there. Um, yeah, or at least that's the one I remember. That's the scene I remember hearing it in. Also, like, just just from, like, a viewership perspective, I, I just, like, double-checked of, like, yeah, the, like, when the war starts, which is Coming of Shadows, the war lasts 11 episodes, which yeah. seems like a very fastidious and efficient, very, like, efficient wrapping up of a plot point, relatively. In the original conception, the, sh- the, Narn, the Narn Centauri War was supposed to last, like, until the... And like till the end of season four, Yeesh. yeah, or the like midway through the end, like season three, almost the end of season, almost like into season four. It's so much more of a gut punch to do it this way, though. Yeah, no, I agree. I think this is and better, it, and but... it frees up Jakar to do all of the really cool Jakar stuff that we're mm-hmm. about to see. Yeah, I want to talk about Londo's quantum morality. And the fact that he oh, only Londo seems this episode. he only seems to have a moral compass when he's unobserved by someone with with morals, and when he's when he's around other unethical people, he seems fine. He seems capable of like having <laughs> a moral like having ethics. But then the minute he's observed by someone with a soul, his <laughs> his morality collapses back down into spineless. You know, it's like douchebaggery. Him, if, if you put him in the same room with Morden or Rifa, like he he goes to Morden, he's like, "You killed the ten thousand Narn," um, and or to Rifa, like it's mass drivers. It is they're they're illegal. Yeah, but then you put him in the room with like any normal person, and he's like, "Yeah, so what? We killed a million Narns. Give me a drink." It's bizarre that. And I get that they're like trying to do a thing there, but I think in this episode, I think it might be the one thing in this episode with Londo that I think doesn't entirely work is 
they play him, they play his horror at what's happened so nicely that his his gleeful fury in the last scene in the council, barring any other reference point to show you how he's transforming his grief or his horror into that, yeah, doesn't land right. It just seems there, like there should have been one fuck, more Lando? scene. Yeah, there needed to be one scene to show him like how he's how he processes that. Yeah, how he yeah. processes the latter and like the grief and or, or the horror into this cuz it doesn't seem out of character for him to kind of yeah. make that emotional transformation. Yeah. But it could have done with a stepping stone in there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Zathos here. Uh, there's going to be some spoilers once I'm done talking. So if you uh, haven't watched the show, skip ahead about two minutes and 31 seconds after I'm done. Also, I'm leaving in the dramatic pauses as Justin blows Anna and Jude's mind with some really sharp-eyed uh, noticing of a key detail. So enjoy that. Is have we seen a vision of Londo's future yet? Yes. I'm trying to remember what... Okay. Sather's cut here. Um, something that is also interesting in the, the council scene is Londo coughs. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Dang. In the... In the middle Fuck. of the scene where he is delivering the terms of the surrender, he coughs. It is a very deliberate stop. Fuck. Fuck me. I had never noticed that. Jesus Christ. So he's got his he's got the keeper at this point. Does he? He he certainly might. <laughs> is this a headphone loving? <laughs> no, this is something I've never thought of before. You've seen you. I mean, you know what the keeper is. Well, yeah, we've seen. I've seen War Without End. So, so yeah. yes. So at this point, Justin has finally, finally seen War Without End. So we don't like the number of headphones moments will cut down dramatically because we could. Yeah, like, but listeners, if you're if you're staying along with us, this might be this. If you're trying to do this like me and you're only following other episodes, why are you? Why are you? Please don't do this to yourself. Um, this this is probably a headphones moment for you. You like skip ahead like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I think he must have his keeper now. They must have t- put it on him while he was on Centauri Prime. That's fuck wild. But the the thing is that like it's not this. That's not necessarily consistent with the rest of his behavior through season three, <laughs> no. four, and five. But I mean, maybe it's maybe it doesn't like I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's just the seed of it. Yeah. I mean, he maybe he has a larval keeper. Yeah. Fuck. That's bananas. You know, I would have loved to see him like scratch his neck or something like that alongside the cough. That would have really clinched it. Yeah. Well, now I'm gonna check. Um. Yeah, now um, I'm very curious if that's. I mean, so, in Lurker's Guide, it does say that it was like a deliberate cough. And so one one thing I have to say about the the Londo Council scene there is that I think that is the first moment in this show that I hate Londo. 
Yeah, no, this entire episode, like, is both for his inactions in the first half of the episode and his attitudes and actions in the second half, I I consider this my moral event horizon for Londo. Of just, like, this is the point where he stops... And this is, like... I, I like this is the point where I think you have to like stop taking him as like a dude who has his own agenda is part of an imperialist empire, but is like willing to be a pal and to help Sharon and the rest of the crew out on some problem of the week. And this is him ascending to villain. Yeah. Yep. That it's um, it's the moment where he embraces the villainy yeah for sure to be to be followed in season three by yet more embracing villainy (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah the it's it's the first moment that like you aren't like you know well Londo is a bad person who makes bad choices. This is the moment where you're like, no, I fucking hate him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's still a great character. And Jurassic absolutely hits it out of the park in every Londo scene. Yeah. Um, um, I want to call out one other thing uh, as we're getting, we're, as we like sort of wrap up this episode. Delenn's face when Drawl mentions uh, Sheridan's wife is terrific because she does this like look down lips tighten thing <laughs> that is exactly the face you make when someone mentions your boy your new boyfriend's ex and it's really good it's super subtle because she's not like it's not like the camera's close up on her like she's kind of off on one yeah. side of the screen but i noticed it this time and i was like mm, nice Good touch. Yeah, that's it's, a good it's one. A nice, it's a nice bit of acting. Uh, in other really good Delenn moments from this, um, the joyful absolutely damn it, yeah, is just so good. It's such a, it's such a like like good clean take, and it's so out of nowhere that it's just like yeah, it's jarringly good. Yep, yep, one hundred percent. And I absolutely, absolutely ship Sheridan and Delenn forever. Yeah. They're the only thing I can say against them. This episode is that their entire plot line. This episode is completely forgettable. It it is. It is literally just, there's no actual problem here. It's just Delenn and Sheridan getting to bleak cute and me tossing a thing up for season three. Just so like I could like, I can toss the ball up for like, me in 20 episodes to dunk it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's weird, but... Well, that that just happens in this show. Yeah. <laughs> like, at least we know there's like, okay, this is going to have more pay, payoff than caution a dude in a funny hat talking to each other. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, Rip. Gosh. Um, I, I also, again, I want to shout out Draw's new actor for just like stealing every scene he is in loving life like, yeah <laughs> he is getting that check and he is loving every second of it yeah i i really 
I always really buy the recast, too, that he really does seem like a younger, more jovial version of the drawl who we see in season one. Yeah. Well, I, I have I have one one last comment, which is so Jude, you pointed out the you made a mention of that the um that the great machine looks like kind of like a crucifixion type of thing. It always reminded me more of the um Da Vinci man. Yeah, the Vitruvian man. Yeah, I, yeah. I could see that I mean, as well. I mostly was just dunking on the machine for being silly. <laughs> um But yeah, it definitely does have more of a Vitruvian man than crucifixion thing going on, uh, which probably is much more in keeping with it thematically. Faces in this episode, uh, as I alluded to in uh, my summary, W. Morgan Shepard returns uh, from his original stint as the soul uh, hunter, uh, is now uh, Gesten, Jakar's uncle, and frankly, he's much better as Gesten than he was as the soul hunter. Yeah, he gets like two scenes and they're great. Yeah. Uh, We also have, uh, this is my own personal uh, choice to put this guy in. Riff Hutton is a guy you've never (laughs) heard of. He plays the ISN reporter this episode. His IMDb page is full of things like additional crew, additional voice, Joe. But he's done (laughs) fucking everything. Uh, Jag, Star Trek, Alien Nation, Doogie Howser, like fucking a million animated things uh and i just thought he deserved a shout out i thought he did a good job and his imdb page fucking claps so good job riff hutton you did a good job and your name is fucking cool we might be the first podcast to ever reference this human being well i'm proud of that (laughs) yeah i'm gonna see if he's on twitter and give him a tag when this episode airs all right so next episode is episode 21 Comes the Inquisitor. Anna, take us away. Alrighty. So this one was written by JMS and directed by Michael Vihar. The A plot here uh, involves another B5 station mystery guest, this time with bonus mystery. Kosh has doubts about Delenn's ability to lead the forces of light in the coming war and has sent an Inquisitor to make sure that she's up to the task. Delenn informs Sheridan about this and tells him not to intervene in the matter, no matter what happens. The Inquisitor arrives on a Vorlon transport ship and turns out to be a man named Sebastian, wearing Victorian-era clothing and carrying a crystal-topped black walking stick. Sheridan escorts him to the room uh, set aside for his and Delenn's use, and their conversation reveals that Sebastian indeed came from London in 1888, and that he was taken by the Vorlons to be used as an Inquisitor. Delenn arrives as well, with the room now set up by Sebastian. He tells her to put on a pair of manacles. She can remove them at any time, but by doing so, uh, she will be declaring herself unworthy. She puts them on, and the questioning begins. Sebastian wants to know, who are you? But no answer Delenn gives seems to be correct, and he uses the manacles to cause pain every time she gives an unacceptable answer. The questioning continues, addressing the role Delenn believes she plays in prophecy and the universe, and he finally asks whether Delenn has considered that she might be incorrect about that role. Uh, She admits that she has and is rewarded by a brief break to rest. The interrogation then continues, and Sebastian grows crueler in both words and the use of the manacles. 
During a break, Lanier sneaks in to check on Delenn and realizing that she is in danger, tries to convince her to leave. She refuses and he leaves before Sebastian returns. Lanier is disturbed by the situation and goes to find Sheridan, telling the captain that he thinks Sebastian is killing Delenn and requesting that Sheridan help. Sheridan then arrives, and Sebastian indicates that he was in fact expecting this. He throws Sheridan against the wall and restrains him with the power of his staff, and then begins to question Sheridan about what he is willing to sacrifice to survive and win the war. He repeatedly hits Sheridan with energy bursts, and Delenn demands that he stop, and says she is willing to trade her life for his. Meanwhile, Sheridan urges her to run away and save herself. Sebastian asks whether Delenn is truly willing to give up her life here, knowing that she will not fulfill her destiny or further her cause. Delenn counters that this is her cause, saving lives, and that she is willing to die here, alone and forgotten, if it would save John's life. With this, Sebastian releases their bonds and says that they have both passed and they can go. Sebastian clarifies the fact that they were both willing to lay down their lives for each other rather than for some higher purpose proves that they are the right people in the right place and the right time. You can go. You've passed. Both of you. Passed what? How do you know the chosen No greater love hath a man than he lay down his life for his brother. Not for millions, not for glory, not for fame, for one person. In the dark, where no one will ever know or see. I have been in the service of the Vorlons for centuries, looking for you. Diogenes with his lamp looking for an honest man willing to die for all the wrong reasons. At last, my job is finished. Yours is just beginning. When the darkness comes, know this. You are the right people, in the right place, at the right time. As Sheridan walks Sebastian back to his ship, he reveals the result of some digging into Earth history based on the information Sebastian has provided about himself. It turns out that his mysterious disappearance from London coincided with the end of a notorious string of murders in the East End. Sebastian confirms that he had believed himself to be a divine messenger, sending a message etched in blood, but that he was not remembered as a messenger as a prophet or hero, only as Jack. The B-plot in this one is sort of a day in the life of Jakar. At the start of the episode, he's taking a turn as a street preacher in the Zocalo, attempting to warn others that they may soon share the fate of the Narn. He eventually steps down, and our next scene with him is him speaking with a human arms dealer, where he's finalizing a deal to buy weapons for the Resistance. In fact, the same weapons that Narn sold to Earth uh, in the Earth and Bari War, but with a su- substantial markup. Garibaldi catches up to him later, concerned about the arms deal. He doesn't want weapons to come through the station. Jakar confesses the deal, and Garibaldi offers him contact information for a friend who runs a transfer station that Jakar could use instead. 
In the next scene, he's joined in the turbo lift by Veer, who attempts to apologize for what the Centauri have done to the Narn. But Jakar refuses to forgive him, as he cannot apologize to the many, many, many dead. Jakar's next meeting is with the other Narn of the station, who are chafing at his leadership. He's currently unable to get communications to and from the homeworld, and they're concerned about his ability to actually get weapons where they're needed. They give him a deadline of 24 hours to get a message from Narn. He asks Sheridan for help, and the captain agrees. Uh, and this will serve as a test of the ranger's abilities. Jakar gets the message and brings it to the other Narn, who agree to follow his lead. And that's that's the episode. It's it's actually neatly divided into A plot and B plot, although the, the B plot is a little bit stream of consciousness. I, I do want to say that, like, the first thing that comes to me in this episode is that, or just the A plot specifically, it's very biblical. Mm. It, it feels like a synthesis of the story of Job and the and Christ in the desert. Like neither of those perfectly fit, but it's sort of like got vibes of both of them of just like before Delenn can assume this role, she has to go through hell first. And I think there's something like interesting or remarkable in the fact that Unlike the other people who have tried to be this chosen one in the war and leader uh, against the shadows, of all the people that Sebastian has tested, the reason that Delenn succeeds is because Delenn is not alone. Yeah. And and that, I I think that's... The idea that it'll take both of them together to lead this battle. Yeah. Yeah. When either of them alone would fail. Yeah, and then it's like, you you can't, like, this isn't, and that, like, you would fail if you're doing this alone, but they're, like, the strengthened community, uh, which we'll see repeated in, I, I think, several times over the next episodes in the next season. For sure, yeah. I really hate this kind of character that comes into a show and knows more than everybody and privileged information some sort of moral or has some sort of moral authority and can do whatever they want yeah it's like when you're it's like a it's like when your gm introduces a pc and all of a sudden is just like driving the, the narrative from inside the game um <laughs> i don't love that that said it's an extraordinarily Vorlon thing to do. I, so, yeah, yeah. Um, it, um, the fact that I don't like it works is is the like Vorlons would be exactly that kind of GM. Yeah, <laughs> don't play D anD D with Vorlons. That's the the lesson you should take from this episode. Would a would a fifteen succeed? You have a question. Uh, do I roll damage? I don't understand. Never ask that question. Yeah, I really hate him. I just think he's a, a fucking irritating character. But I really do love Delenn in this episode. I think yeah. it gives us a really good, not overview, but it gives us a good look at what Delenn has been trying to achieve in a way. Like what she's aiming for with her 
what her role, what she views her role as and what it's turned into over this year. Because Delenn of season one didn't know a lot of things that she knows now and hasn't been through a lot of things that Delenn in season, end of season two has been through. And I think taking a moment to pause and show that growth, I think is, is instructive and useful going into season three. This is an interesting episode because I have a mixed relationship with it because I definitely like have this like visceral hatred of Sebastian um, for all the reasons that you list. And also he makes he makes Delenn sad and that's not allowed. Yeah. That is completely disallowed. I, I, I joked about this yesterday while I was rewatching the episode. But Sebastian really is just the white male authority figure <laughs> who gets to preside over something with like no qualifications of his own. Yeah. I mean, what qualifies Jack the Ripper to be a Vorlon Inquisitor? Other than apparently the ability to be violent. He, he's failed his way up into becoming like the gatekeeper of the uh, of the chosen one, which I think is hilarious. I, I like my, my notes in this episode. It says John Sheridan loves his wife and Jack the Ripper is a transphobe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> There's also the aspect that, like, it's got that other bit of it that he's there to gatekeep the chosen one, but he knows that he'll never be the chosen one. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that much, at least, I think is actually really interesting that you ask, like, what's his authority to judge the chosen ones? They picked him out because he was a nutbag who would be capable of doing anything that they told him to without a moral with a, with zero moral squeamishness who thought he was some holy chosen person on this personal crusade and then they just blew his damn mind with the fact that he was fucking insignificant and they're like <laughs> you're pointless you are a fucking grain of sand in an uncaring galaxy you're you mean nothing but if you come with us We'll give you a purpose. You're still pointless, but you can have a purpose if you want. We'll get somebody else if you don't do it. You're still pointless. But if you come, you can have a purpose. And and maybe someday you'll meet someone that actually does have a purpose and isn't pointless. Like, yeah. I kind of like the idea that that's what they reduced Jack the Ripper to as a guy that was completely fucking useless until the Vorlons showed up and were like, eh, we'll, we'll, we'll find something for you to do. Use every part of the human race. <laughs> yeah, they just keep him on ice. And they just say, oh, a new person thinks they're going to win the war against the shadows? Better pop in a cold one with the boy. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't uh, hate that idea. That is the joke that keeps on giving with, cry- with cryosleep. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't hate the idea. I think I hate the execution of Sebastian more than I hate the idea of him. I don't think the actor... He's way too hammy for what... Sebastian is supposed to be in terms of like the role he's playing. I think he's way too handy. This is the, I I really hate to say it, but this is the episode that they should have had Brad Dourif in. (laughs) I maybe, yeah, I like, I personally like, I think he's fine. Like, I think, I think the role here is that like, he's not 
like I, I think he's fine just because you don't need a standout actor for that role. You just need him to play a type because you just need you just need you just need Mira Ferlin to play off him. I, I think she does a fantastic job with, with like what she's given, and I think he's fine in that role. And I, I don't, I, I just don't want him to like steal the spotlight from what is it. Let, let me put it this way: Here's what I wanted. I didn't want him to be Jack the Ripper. Oh, yeah. I wanted. We're gonna go. Well, into no, that I mean, I wanted him to be Sebastian, the guy that the Vorlons keep on ice. That has given up that person because he no longer believes that he doesn't wear the the clothes, he doesn't retain the accent, he doesn't look down on the the women in the Zocalo and make sn- snarling remarks about how they're all whores. He recognizes his own <laughs> insignificance and has like put it away. The fact that they basically just made him Jack the Ripper, except working for the Vorlons, like undercuts the the the, the theme that they were trying the, the what they were trying to do with his character. I think. But I think instead it sheds a light upon the Vorlons, which is that they have no fucking idea what they're doing. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> All right. I mean, like, 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 legitimately, like. If you were thinking like, yeah, these are actually the like, these are like the people who are going to be like leading the war. These are the elder race that is like wisely guiding everything towards the strategy. The Vorlons have no fucking clue what they're doing. They just they just want everybody to think that they have some sort of big plan. Yeah. yeah so I like I think it's like like I, I think it's like, yeah. Telepathic RGB lizards or whatever they are. Uh <laughs> fucking around nobody knows what they're up to uh i say lizards because in the original uh outline in jms's most original outline for b5 uh the vorlons were supposed to look like giant lizard people uh when uh outside of their encounter suits but not being like telepathically projected to look like angels or whatever giant lizard people giant glowing lizard people not kidding the manacles that Jack uses, or Sebastian uses, whatever, I'm going to call them interchangeably, whatever, of the lightning effect sound effect they do is just like the most stock lightning sound effect that you, that this thing has been used for 30 years. It is the exact <laughs> same sound effect that the shock spell in Skyrim uses. Like, it had to have, like, come. This is, like, this is. In, like, the. the, the, the on the computer, they're just like, hmm, electricity.wav. Right. <laughs> it's it's legitimately, legitimately, like, this sound effect, I have heard it from, like, next generation to, like, present day game development. Yep. It has been used everywhere. I, I just it's love like, it. It's, it's like it's, the it's... lightning effect of the Wilhelm scream. So one thing I really liked with the kind of set dressing in this one was the S- Sebastian's torture room, for lack of a better term. Um, when Delenn steps into it, it is a gray room that's largely dark, but has circles of light on the floor. Mm-hmm. Where have we seen that before? <laughs> in, in addition to that, did you catch the, the designation of the room? Yeah, it was... Um, it's Grey 19. Yep. The 9 would become 1. Yep, 
Yeah. It's gray, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's gray, it's gray 19. Yeah, the, the, we're, we're, this is the gray council, listeners, in case you didn't catch on. It's, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a very, like, the cinematography in this episode is spot on. Like, it's one of, it's one of the episodes that's right up there with Geometry of Shadows for, like, they're doing stuff that, like, I think this is something that's really good and... We're going to see this in a couple of episodes later. The cinematographer on the show, who I believe is John Flynn. Um, I can't, I, 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 that might be the director of one of the episodes of the episodes, but um, the cinematographer they, for, they have for the show, like is willing to occasionally like go a little weird. And this is one of those episodes and it's really good. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's going to be even better in five episodes when we get to Passing Through Gethsemane. Oh, uh, fuck, yeah. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> which I think is, like, it's the thing that I, like, I do want to shout out is that, like, they actually do, like, good camera work and light up cool shots. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. Like, most of the time the show is very standard. Like, it looks like a very standard show. And they do stuff that is like, oh, hey, we're going to, like, take you out of that and make it look like a different show. I think one of the most important parts of this episode is that it it brings to a head something that I've been talking about in these recordings for the last like half a season, which is Delenn's sort of ongoing identity crisis, right? That she spent season one and the first, say the first third of season two, being extremely convinced about her place in the universe and her place in prophecy. And since then, uh, that has dissolved a great deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen it with, I think I think it informed some of her acting and choices in Confessions and Lamentations. We've seen it her, with her being kicked off the Grey Council and trying to maintain a brave face of like, well, this was like, this is better anyway. That there's been this kind of like slow burn back plot of Delenn falling apart. And honestly, like, I feel like as much as I hate Sebastian and feel like the, the execution of this is like very ham handed on the part of the Vorlons, I don't think they were wrong to question her. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Kosh was wrong to think that Delenn maybe needed to reevaluate everything. What are what are your thoughts on that? I think I'm marginally less skeptical as to the Vorlon's competency than Justin is. At least Kosh's <laughs> competency. I I don't think the Vorlons are competent, but that's <laughs> uh I think Kosh knew Delenn and knew what she needed. I don't think Kosh summoned the Inquisitor to kill Delenn. Yeah. I think Kosh probably, I think he had a, a, a very firm belief that this was what was necessary for her to. I'm pretty sure that Kosh was, would have trusted that Sheridan would show up. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was getting to is that I think he, yeah. I think Kosh knew enough about those two people to know that to have a good idea of what the outcome of that would be. Because the thing about Kosh is Kosh has been kind of like moving the chess pieces this whole time. And I, I, I think that Kosh kind of had the right, I knew what he knew what he was about 
to this point. Yeah. And I don't think, especially with regards to Delenn, I feel like Delenn very much is his personal sort of protege in this war. And I don't think he would have sacrificed Delenn if he didn't uh, unnecessarily. I think he would, I don't think he would have put her in that kind of personal danger unless he was very confident that it was the right, th- the right and necessary thing to do. Yeah. Sheridan, 100%, he would have thrown to the wolves, but <laughs> Del- uh, yeah. Delenn, not so much. It was an exceptionally cruel kick in the pants. Yeah. But Delenn needed a kick in the pants. Yeah. And I'll say this, I mean, whatever intentions that Kosh might have had, the Vorlons are assholes, and Kosh is certainly no exception there. Um, he might oh, yeah. have good intentions, but he still is whatever a Vorlon is, and his moral compass bends towards the greater good in a pretty demented way. The greater good. Yeah. I definitely get... I definitely... I mean, and that's not even like a, a spoilers thing. Like, you can definitely tell that Vorlons are like... There's a, a branch of utilitarianism that is like, when you do the math, whatever comes out to be the best for the most people versus like simple utilitarianism or something like that. But mm-hmm. they're the ones that are just like, whatever's the best for the most, whatever is like the ultimate good, that's the one you do. Damn the consequences. Yeah. And that's that's the Vorlons. They, yep. They've picked their... Their their plan and they're gonna they're gonna run that play. I, I'm dodging around the thing I want to rant about, so I like we're we're, we're gonna get to that in, like after we've done this. Um, let's talk about the elevator scene. Oh, oh yeah, dear, baby. Um, for for specific for for uh, listeners for what I'm referring to specifically, Veer and Jakar end up in an elevator together. Veer tries to apologize in the most awkward Veer way possible. And Jakar doesn't say anything until the elevator opens. He stops in, like, the middle of the door, which Jakar, bit of a dick move, but okay. He cuts his uh, palm, and as each drop of blood drips down, he says, Dead. 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 And it is for a scene where that is one of three lines he says... Like, it is, it is a, it's the moment where you can see that your car is ready to snap. Yeah. If it, I, I suspect that had it been absolutely any other Centauri, because he's been on the station a couple years and he knows Veer, probably not well, but he's been around Veer and he knows that Veer is a big softie. I, I have to believe that if any other Centauri had been on that elevator with him and had said a fucking word, he'd have broken him over his knee like a bundle of twigs. But because it's Veer, he's going to instead inflict a psychological wound on him that will, like, shatter him emotionally, probably for the rest of his life. Yeah, for sure. We're going to see eventually that Veer turns that guilt into action. Yeah. We will get there in a while, listeners. (laughs) That's a long ways off. Uh, God knows how many single episodes we're going to do over season three. Okay, now that now that I've like now that we we've got through that, yeah, do do your rant, listeners. If you know me from outside of this podcast, you are probably very aware that I'm really into like murder 
and like crime in general, <laughs> like like in a John Rogers way of just like I find it to be very interesting. To be clear, not because you do crimes. Not not because I do crimes, but big crime fan here. One might say I'm a big murder fan, but that's that's a whole other thing. <laughs> gonna gonna roll with that. But le- but I do want to like I find serial killers to be completely uninteresting, especially when they are written in fictional detail. Mostly just because there are a lot of yeah, we're just gonna say it. There's a lot of ableist tropes that go on with serial killers, mm-hmm. and modern thriller writers tend to depict them as like ubermensch who like aren't possible to catch and like criminal masterminds when uh, i'll fall back on john rogers who says that like you know criminals are get caught because they're stupid i find serial killers to be like this weird thing that writers like not glorify but they put on this weird pedestal there's a there's a lot of mythologizing around them yeah I think that the Jack the Ripper thing hurts this episode in the in the long run. It's a reveal that happens at the end that doesn't help the episode at all. Anybody who knows anything about the mythology of Jack the Ripper is going to hear London 1888 and be like, oh, it's Jack. Yeah. It's not actually subtle, and yet it's, like, a big reveal at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, like, if we want to go through the theory that Jude has of, like, a person who is exposed to the vastness of the universe and shattered by that, you could do stuff with it being a nineteen late 19th century British, you know, middle class man who, you know... I'm not going to say is the height of historical privilege, but is, like, pretty damn close. Him being exposed to, like, the existence of aliens and the vastness of that, that alone showing him in consequence. I think that would have been, like, if you rewrote this episode, I I could go lean into that way at least. But the, the, the Jack the Ripper thing just feels like it's tacked on at the end, even if it's, like, scattered throughout the episode like i do like the weird aesthetic of sebastian that's weird see that's the opposite i i i I don't think that simply having him be like a noble person would be enough and i hate the aesthetic i don't want the aesthetic i think the aesthetic is part of what i hate about him because it's it feels really corny to me what i want is for someone who thought they were a chosen one who did these horrific things because they thought they were special and then you have the Vorlons come down and they show him, you're fucking pointless. Everything yeah. you did was fucking pointless. And just blow, like, just sandblast every bit of ego out of him until he's reduced down to this hollow of a thing that they have turned into a tool. It feels really, it, it just, like, it's the thing that hits, like, it, it, it hits and is just like my reaction to it is a no sell it's just like yeah it, it's mostly just i would prefer anything different let me put it this way if i had written there could it, have been an interesting compromise i think if i had written it and they t- and the, the mandate was it's got to be jack the ripper i would have had that be i never would have said it out loud i would have had it be right hinted at or suggested 
from a lot of context clues, but I never would have said it. Yeah, because because like if you if you do that, you can do things like you can like lead the possibility is just like did the Vorwans just construct this person? Did they like we've seen that they can like do shit with like memories and mm-hmm. shit. Maybe like did they build this person? Did they like take somebody and reprogram them or just like you know? I think I think there the the thing is like in ambiguity there. There's fun you can have with people filling in the blanks. I I would have loved to see costuming that would be like as dapper as Sebastian looks in his suit. I would have loved costuming that was like like a robe equivalent of the encounter suit, comparable fabrics, but you know something that would be much more alien looking, like something that the yeah. Vorlons might make for a human. I think that like one thing that I'm like sort of on is that like I think there I think there's like a good power there in just having him look like a stuffy privileged white dude especially in just the encounter with Delenn I just think that there's that, like point. that is I, get, really, I get what you're saying there. yeah yeah I, and I think that like if you make him look alien that detracts from it yeah like the the suit is like it's an aesthetic choice but it's not something you like like once he dishes the hat and they get in the manacle scene, it's not something you really ever care about. It like the most important part of that I think is the cane, mm-hmm. because that's such a good like that that aesthetically is like that gives a motif to the character and the the click as he walks. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. That, is, that's is yeah. a very nice little audio yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing we can agree on is that we don't like it. And yeah. we all have different ideas about how we might have liked it yeah. better. Yeah, exactly. But it it doesn't entirely work. I don't think anybody would argue that this episode works with, ex- except for the fact that Mira Furlan crushes what she's given. Without Mira Furlan, it wouldn't have landed as well. It's not a home run like Long Twilight Struggle. It's a it's a it's a single to the left. It would have been it would have been so interesting to to shorten the like inquisitor plot and leave five minutes or so at the end for the introduction to the ranger scene that would have that would have clinched it nicely there you go yeah problem solved jms call us (laughs) we'll we'll fix your 25 year old tv show like that's really what we're doing here we're just we're just pitching it for the reboot I mean, uh, just just hire us on. Well, in that show case, we should we'll be we it. should be hitting up WB because as as he is exhausted of saying on Twitter every day, all day on Twitter, he has no control over the show at this point. He was he was as surprised as everyone else when it showed up on HBO. So there's really only the one dude in this episode, uh, Wayne Alexander. Um, I like he hasn't really been in anything else beyond Babylon Five. He's got some other <laughs> guest appearances. But a, a funny note is that he is American, not English. I would appa- not guess that. Yeah, uh, British listeners thought that too. Wow. <laughs> they they thought he was English. That's, That's a good impressive. accent. Yeah. Something, something, linguistic drift. Something, something, something. Jack the Ripper would not have had that precise accent. Something, something. <laughs> Anna and I both noticed this. Um, or, like, I initially caught on to it, and Anna confirmed this for me. Um uh, the um in the last scene um sheridan says that the murders happened on the east end Mm -hmm. which is correct that is historically correct Mm -hmm. however the subtitles for this episode 
they say West End. And Anna, you were able to find that the lip read like you were able you you read the lips. It says yeah. West End, and like he said West End, right? Yeah, it's it was clearly like if you look at his mouth, it clearly he made a W sound. Okay, because yeah. which I think is just funny that they redubbed that one particular line. I mean, they must have gotten so much hate mail. <laughs> I, and that must have been on like the DVD release. That must have been like on the DVD release. God forbid he gets that wrong compared to everything else this show gets wrong. <laughs> but I mean, ripperologists are like a thing. Yeah. And it's like, is it, is it, I'm like, I'm wondering if that was like the DVD release because the subtitles for the episode, both on like Amazon when I originally watched this and HBO both say West End. And it, huh. this is like, this is one thing I'm like, when did this change? But I mean, the subtitles also sometimes say really weird shit. Yeah, the subtitles for, for HBO, are, they're a little wonky. They, they're not yeah. perfect. So it's just, it's, it's, I mean, it's consistently between both, both platforms. It was just weird. Yeah. And this is just like my one thing that was like. I think, like, I think sometimes subtitlers go off of the original script. <laughs> Sometimes they yeah. have that. Yeah. Uh, Shrug emoji. Um, yeah. All right. We good with this episode? Yeah. Anything else we want to talk no, about? Um, maybe Jakar is a Cassandra briefly. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Because we, we get a bit of that here with him being a street preacher for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Where he's, you know, like trying to, trying to, since he's not on the council anymore, this is the only way they can get the word out, apparently, yeah. to, you know, the other ambassadors of like, you fuckers are next. Um, and everybody ignores him. And then all those fuckers are next. Yeah. Uh, throughout the show, really, Jakar is, Cass- is a Cassandra. Um, he's always a Cassandra. Yeah. I mean, back in, back in Coming of Shadows. Yeah. He, he really kind of like, nails it from go uh for all the good it does him really what does jakar not do right i i have some very horrible things i could say but i'm not gonna out of deference to ragesh my... three ragesh three out of deference out of deference to the uh the fact that we have another episode to record huh. tonight <laughs> you don't want to start a fight is um, that what you're telling me <laughs> all right um listeners uh, we only have one episode left in season two. That is The Fall of Night. And you can join us next time for that. Until then, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.